0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for February 23rd, 2018. I'm Susan Swain in Washington.
1: But I think that uh, uh, the court always has in mind when it, when it decides important cases. Um, is this a case that uh, the Constitution gives us power to decide uh, and that the legislature, uh, particularly the Congress, has exercised that power in a manner that is consistent with the broad outlines of the Constitution.
0: On February 26, C-SPAN launches the second season of Landmark Cases, an in-depth look at 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Here to talk about some of these cases is Peter Irons, emeritus professor of political science at UC San Diego. He's the author of more than 14 books, including A People's History of the Supreme Court. Peter Irons, in our C-SPAN series, Landmark Cases, we're going to be looking over 200 years of the Supreme Court. Would you give us a broad overview of of the court and its importance in American society throughout history? Today, anyone who watches uh, uh, what's happening in the national government really has an understanding of the significant role it plays in our governance and in our society. But has that always been the case?
1: Actually, it hasn't been the case uh, throughout our history. Um, at the very beginning of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, um, there was very little discussion of, of the courts, uh, the federal courts and the Supreme Court. Uh, most cases at that time were handled in state courts, and it wasn't thought that the Supreme Court would have uh, the role it does now. In fact, uh, in the Federalist Papers, Uh, they were referred the court was referred to as the least dangerous branch. I think many people today uh, would dispute that and say that it's either the most uh, dangerous branch or at least the most important branch of government.
0: Was there a turning point or was it an evolutionary process in history?
1: Well, like most things, there were were both turning points and an evolution. Uh, The evolution, of course came about because the country became uh, uh, much broader in scope, that is, geographical scope in population. Uh, We had the Industrial Revolution. We had the uh, immigration of people from countries all around the world um, and the advances in technology in the last uh, uh, several decades. So in that sense, it's been an evolution, and the court has, of course, Uh, been forced to deal with a lot of those changes, but there have been uh, times at which there were watershed uh, changes. Uh, As we know, uh, the cases involving slavery back in the 19th century with Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson with Jim Crow, uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, Miranda versus Arizona, all those cases, many people recognize the names, but these are cases that really changed the way the court interpreted uh, provisions of the Constitution, and they have become pretty much uh, flashpoints on both sides, people who support those decisions, people who oppose them, people who are trying to change them. Uh, So the court is always, uh, and particularly these days, always in the news,
0: Well, we're going to dig into a few of those cases that really changed the tide of history and also the way people looked at the court. I'm going to start back... 200 years, actually 199 because it's bicentennials next year, with our very first case in the series, McCulloch versus Maryland. You have written extensively about this in your book, People's History of the Supreme Court. And in this particular case, you said it's even more important than Marbury versus Madison, which is in every high school student's textbook. Why is this case so important?
1: Well, it's more important, uh, particularly for those of us who specialize in constitutional law. Uh, than Marbury, which involved a very sort of minor point of law, uh, whether this gentleman named Marbury could get a commission as a justice of the peace in Washington, D.C. Uh, but McCullough was more, uh, important in the sense that the court took a very broad and expansive view of the powers of Congress that are delegated to it under the Constitution. Uh, and there are about, uh, 17 or 18 specific powers. Some of them are very broad, like to make all laws proper and necessary to carry out the functions of government. Some are very narrow, like setting up post offices and weights and measures. But in McCulloch, this was a case that involved uh, setting up the National Bank, and the uh, Congress had imposed a tax on all banks that were not uh, part of the National Bank. And uh, the state of Maryland refused to collect this tax, uh, and it went to the Supreme Court. And in that, court, in that case, the court ruled unanimously, uh, an opinion by Chief Justice John Marshall, that the powers delegated to Congress were, in fact, broad and were not limited by any specific provision. Um, that is, it all came under the Necessary and Proper Clause. So if it was necessary and proper, to set up a national bank, the court uh, found that Congress had powers, uh, the taxation power, the power to uh, uh, appropriate money for the government that would include the idea of a national bank. So that was their holding, and since that time, uh, the court has uh, never expressly limited the powers of Congress. They've narrowed them in some cases, but they've never said "This, uh, this is a power... Totally outside uh, congressional authority uh, to legislate. So, in that sense, McCulloch was um, probably the first very important case the court decided, and it's still important today.
0: If there are people today who look at the broad expanse of the federal government in all aspects of our our lives, can they look back to the decision in McCulloch versus Maryland as the genesis of that?
1: I think they can. Not that many people have heard of it or would would hearken back to it, but I think that uh, uh, the court always has in mind, when it it decides important cases, um, is this a case that uh, the Constitution gives us power to decide uh, and that the legislature, uh, particularly the Congress, has exercised that power in a manner that is consistent with the broad outlines of the Constitution? That is the idea that it was to set up a government, national in scope, uh, with limited but very extensive powers. Uh, there are, of course, powers delegated to the states themselves, which the, uh, Congress is not entitled to, uh, encroach upon. But for that particular, particular, uh, provision, uh, the Constitution. It's it's not actually a provision. It's it's the overall structure and sense of what the Constitution was meant to do. And in that sense, McCulloch really is the, the starting point for all of this.
0: Well, there's so much more to uh, talk about in the history of this, so interesting characters. It continues the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist discussions from our founding and more, but we'll have to invite people to watch the series to learn more because of Uh, the time we have with you in so many more cases. But before I leave this, the person who argued the case was Daniel Webster. Would you spend just a minute or two and talk about him and his role in arguing the case before the court?
1: Well, Webster, of course, um, is noted for many things, one of which uh, people may not realize is that he argued more cases before the Supreme Court than any other advocate in its history, even today. And we've had uh, lawyers who've argued... uh, Forty or fifty cases. I think Thurgood Marshall argued more than forty cases before the Supreme Court, but Webster was literally arguing cases all of the time. And uh, McCulloch was one of his uh, most important. He also argued some other important cases uh, dealing with the contract laws and uh, Dartmouth College case, for example. Uh, but what's what's interesting about Webster? is that uh, uh, he was a very firm federalist. He really believed that uh, the powers of uh, Congress and of the court to interpret those powers was uh, very extensive. And he was successful more often than not in the cases he argued. So in one sense, you could say that Daniel Webster was uh, the ultimate Supreme Court advocate in our entire history.
0: All the rest of our cases on the landmark cases series are devoted to amendments to the Constitution. In fact, uh, six of them are all concerning the 14th Amendment and various provisions of it. One of the reasons for that is because this year is the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment. We can't really dwell with all six, so I'm going to pick a couple. You referenced one of those. One is Plessy versus Ferguson. Before there was Rosa Parks and her taking a seat on the bus, there was Homer Plessy. Who was he?
1: Homer Plessy was a man who lived in New Orleans, um, and he was what was, uh, because Louisiana back then, this was the end of the 19th century, and uh, back then and even today, uh, it was a very racially mixed uh, uh, state because the uh, the French had settled it. Um, there were African Americans. There was a lot of intermarriage and intercohabitation. Uh, and Omar Plessy was a man who was only what we would call one-eighth black. That is, he had one black uh, great-grandparent, uh, which made him what they called an octoroon. That is, one-eighth of a black person. But he passed for white, as many of the uh, of the Creoles did. And but he also was very uh, firm about his rights as an American citizen and as a black person. Um, so he bought a ticket on a railroad uh, from New Orleans to one of the towns on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain. And he had arranged in advance. And this is not widely known. He had arranged in advance to get arrested, to test the law that required separate but equal railroad carriages for blacks and whites. And um, uh, by the time the case got up to the Supreme Court, uh, and he had lost in the in the state courts, uh, the court was dominated by men at this time who had the racial prejudices of their class and their generation. Um, they did not uh, have much sympathy for or even understanding of what black people went through uh, in their daily lives, the humiliation they endured because of Jim Crow. And so the court ruled with only one very important uh, dissent, uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan. Uh, The court ruled that uh, separate but equal did not violate the Constitution or the 14th Amendment. Uh, Of course, the final provision in that amendment says that no state shall make any law Uh, which uh, violates the equal protection of the laws. Now, if people are protected equally by the law, what would distinguish between Homer Plessy and somebody who is also white or passing for white uh, from a black person? And there's nothing other than their skin color. So this was an example of how the court uh, set in motion a precedent that lasted More than 50 years until the court decided Brown versus Board of Education and struck down public school segregation in 1954.
0: Plessy versus Ferguson is sometimes seen as ushering in the Jim Crow era in American society. Do you agree with that view?
1: It certainly did. Uh, The Jim Crow era, which started really after uh, the Reconstruction era, ended in 1877. Uh, when uh, the uh, the court decided that um, they couldn't enforce uh, protections of black people in the South against vigilantes and other uh, and public officials, uh, but it really gained steam in the in the 1890s, the decade in which Plessy was decided, all the way through the early part of the 20th century, laws were established to uh, prevent uh, African Americans from voting, from owning property. Um, it in a sense, it, it really reestablished uh, the, the worst parts of slavery. That is, blacks uh, in many cases were put back in peonage. There were laws that uh, required them uh, to work on plantations uh, or be sent to jail. And in a sense, the, the Jim Crow era uh, lasted well into the 1960s and even 70s, the last school to officially desegregate in this country under court order was in louisiana in 1974 and that was 20 years after brown versus board of education so it was a long long struggle and uh a struggle in which many people uh uh demonstrated objected even lost their lives uh to strike down a system that really had its roots back in the days of slavery
0: So is it fair to say that Plessy versus Ferguson belongs with Dred Scott on the list of the Supreme Court's worst decisions?
1: Well, I think every constitutional scholar I can imagine and have ever uh, read on this says that uh, Dred Scott and Plessy were two of the worst cases ever decided. There's some controversy about what might make up. Um, the rest of the of the ten worst or five worst, but certainly they're at the top of the list, along with, and, and I might just preview a little bit, um, the decision of the Supreme Court in 1944 in Korematsu versus the United States of holding the uh, internment during World War II of Japanese Americans, again, on the basis of nothing other than their skin color and ancestry, just like Plessy.
0: I'd like to invite people listening to this. The Korematsu case was featured in C-SPAN's first edition of Landmark Cases, and that full program Uh, with our guest is on our website at cspan.org landmark cases. So if you'd like to learn more, it's very interesting. We had one of Mr. Korematsu's relatives at the set along with Dr. Irons. So it was really very, very interesting to learn about how that family was affected along with society. Peter Irons, our guest, as we're talking about the Supreme Court and C-SPAN's 12 featured landmark cases, another 14th Amendment case is Griswold versus Connecticut. It deals with the right to privacy. Is the right to privacy anywhere enumerated in our Constitution?
1: Uh, no. As many people keep pointing out, um, the word privacy does not, uh, is not in the Constitution itself. But what the court held in, in Griswold, this was a case involving a Connecticut law dating back to the 19th century, sort of the Victorian approach to uh, all matters of reproduction that uh, made it a crime to either uh, distribute, use, or sell um, contraceptives of any kind. And, of course, now contraceptives are very widely used by uh, women, and there are male contraceptives as well. Um, but it was challenged by a woman named Estelle Griswold, who ran the Planned Parenthood uh, office in New Haven, Connecticut, and by a physician at the Yale Medical School, And in that case, they argued that, and the court agreed, uh, in a majority opinion, that uh, the concepts of uh, being free from governmental intrusion into matters of your personal life, uh, particularly matters involving sexuality and reproduction, was beyond the power of the government. These were things that the government could not regulate without a very compelling reason and uh, preventing people from using contraceptives uh, was not such a compelling reason. And in it, the court said it, it was basically like putting together a set of blocks. Each block was a different part of the Constitution. And what the court ruled, in an opinion by Justice William O. Douglas, was that if you put them together, they added up to what was basically a wall protecting Your home and your bedroom from governmental intrusion because you have a right to privacy um, behind those walls. And uh, that was the beginning. And uh, and of course, later extended in Roe versus Wade to a more general right to privacy uh, involving uh, abortion.
0: An issue which this country continues to litigate even after that landmark decision. So many of these cases, as we look at them as landmarks, they don't really end up settling things for the United States. Uh, it's it's fascinating to watch how generation after generation goes through so many of the same questions as a people.
1: Well, we certainly do. And in many respects, the opinion of a Supreme Court in a case like uh, Roe versus Wade, or we could pick out several others, is only the beginning of a discussion. Uh, there are always attempts to overturn, either through subsequent court decisions or through constitutional amendments, to overturn these these uh, contentious decisions. Um, there are attempts at going on right now, of course, as we all know, to cut back on uh, the rights of abortion. Congress uh, is considering a law to make it uh, illegal under federal law, uh, for an abortion after the 20th week of pregnancy. And most, virtually all physicians say that that is an intrusion on, uh, the right of women to terminate a pregnancy in a, in a safe manner, uh, during their pregnancy. So, uh, we do have, uh, an ongoing debate. Sometimes, uh, conducted on civil terms, sometimes quite loud and noisy and even spilling into the streets uh, about about these issues, which simply means that as a society, we don't agree. Uh, there are deep divisions in our society, as we know, on both sides of most of these issues. And um, uh, it's unlikely that they will come to a consensus or a resolution anytime soon. And that, of course, will keep the courts and the Supreme Court uh, busy deciding these these follow-up cases.
0: Three of our cases in Landmark Cases series deal with the First Amendment. Two are freedom of speech, one freedom of the press. I'm going to choose uh, to have you comment on Brandenburg versus Ohio, a 1969 case, which to us seemed particularly relevant in the months after Charlottesville.
1: Well, it is particularly relevant because uh, it involved... Um, Uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, back in uh, the 60s, uh, and and this was during the height of uh, conflict over the Civil Rights Movement um, in particular, um, the the Klan uh, was holding rallies in many places, one of which was uh, in Ohio, as a matter of fact. Uh, The Klan had had a chapter uh, in a town near Cincinnati, and held a rally, uh, and interestingly, the only people who attended the rally, uh, aside from Klan members themselves, it was held on a private farm, they burned a cross, but the only uh, witnesses were uh, a TV crew from a, a station in Cincinnati, which filmed it and ran it, and the state of Ohio prosecuted uh, the organizer, a man named Brandenburg, um for under the state's very old sedition law, which made it a crime to advocate the, the violent overthrow of the government. Well, Brandenburg had made several statements in the speech he gave at this rally that were, uh, that were highly uh, racist and prejudicial, but he hadn't actually called to overthrow the government um, or for uh, direct violence against uh, African Americans. Uh, he'd been careful to avoid that. And the Supreme Court uh, reversed his conviction, holding that um, uh, the kind of speech uh, that he gave was short of a direct incitement to violence. The court has later held that if you make a direct incitement that is imminent uh, violence, uh, either very quickly or on the spot, um, you can't be prosecuted for what might happen sometime in the future. and so Brandenburg really, even though the defendant in that case is not somebody most of us would sympathize with, um, the court made it clear that it extends to people, going back to a phrase that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes used to use, the First Amendment protects freedom for the thought that we hate, as well as freedom for the thought that we cherish. And, if, and you can't have it uh, both ways. You have to protect speech of people you don't like. Because in the future, it might be the people like yourself and speech that you do like that gets uh, oppressed.
0: And this First Amendment is an aspect of American governance which distinguishes us from many other societies.
1: Well, it certainly does. Even, for example, in Great Britain, from which we take a great deal of our legal code, um, we have laws in this country, uh, defamation laws protecting people against uh Lawsuits for libel and slander, and we know that's a contentious issue right now, as President Trump has made clear. Uh, but in England, uh, the laws on libel are, are much uh, more restrictive, and um, they don't have a constitution which includes a First Amendment like ours, which uh, is very specific. Congress shall make and the states shall make no laws restricting um, the right of speech or of the press or of the people peaceably to assemble. And uh, so that is really the foundation of our uh, protection of uh, all of us being able to voice our opinions, to uh, band together in organizations to promote our causes, and to uh, assemble to uh, tell our lawmakers what we think about them.
0: We only have time, Peter Irons, for one more case, unfortunately, because there are so many interesting ones here. But I'm going to focus on one with which you have a personal connection. It will be familiar to people because of the current Hollywood movie, The Post. It is New York Times versus the United States dealing with the Pentagon Papers in 1971. Can you tell us about your personal connection to this case?
1: Well, I have a connection. It's it's sort of odd. Um, I was in graduate school at Boston University at the time. This was before I went to law school, uh, largely because of my involvement in this case. I got hooked on it. Uh, But I was offered a job as a researcher for the lawyers who were uh, defending Daniel Ellsberg uh, from a suit uh, in which the government had tried to uh, prevent publication of the Pentagon Papers, and that failed, and then they had sued Ellsberg himself for, in in effect, stealing the paper on which... uh, The Pentagon Papers had been printed. Um, The case never went to trial because the federal judge dismissed it. Um, He was very upset that he had been basically offered as a bribe, uh, really, uh, to become the next FBI director if and when J. Edgar Hoover either retired or or died. He felt that was inappropriate and uh, simply dismissed the case against Ellsberg. But working on it it got me very interested in in how lawyers, uh, how essential lawyers are to protect individual rights and the rights of groups in our society. And that's what really propelled me uh, to go to law school.
0: And what should we take away from the decision in New York Times versus the United States when the court found in favor of the paper's right to publish?
1: Well, let's say, for example, that uh, the New York Times or the the Washington Post, which also published the Pentagon Papers, or any other publication. And and now, of course, we have all the Internet publications to deal with that aren't daily uh, hard copy uh, periodicals. Um, anybody can set up a, an Internet uh, blog or post. And uh, let's say that they got a hold of a uh, classified government uh, document dealing with the um, charges Uh, against uh, President Trump, for example, and published them. Could the government move to prevent the publication of those documents? And the answer under the Pentagon Papers case is very clearly not, um, unless it was of such a danger to national security, such as giving away the nuclear code, for example, um, that the government had a, a compelling reason to prevent that publication. But otherwise, uh, the only recourse the government has is after the fact of publication. Uh, they could charge people for having unlawfully obtained documents. Uh, but even even in that case, uh, it'd be very hard to go after uh, people once the horse is out of the barn, so to speak.
0: Post 9-11, this is a concept that is continually being tested between the government and the press. So this will be an interesting opening salvo to that period of time. You know, we're just about out of time with you. And as I close here, you've spent much of your professional life interesting young people in your classes and people at large through your books in the Supreme Court. What is it about this institution that has so interested you?
1: I think what's most interesting, at least to me and to many of the students I've had over the years teaching constitutional law for about 25 years, is that here is a group of of nine people, a very small number of people, uh, almost entirely throughout our history, white males, although we now have three women and uh, one African-American on the court, um, who make decisions behind closed doors in the court, uh, in their conference room, in which nobody can come except the members of the court, Um, that affect every American's life, and that affect not only those of us who live here in the United States, but many of the decisions affect people uh, who live abroad in other countries, how they relate to the United States, whether they can come into the United States, as the current uh, Muslim ban cases uh, are involved in. Uh, And so Uh, Learning more about the court, understanding how it functions and the impact of its decisions is something that I think every American should should take seriously. Um, Even even if we can't sit inside the court's conference room, we can look at the decisions in their cases and discuss whether this particular decision is a good one or a not good one and for what reasons and sort of animate our civic discussion. Of the issues that uh, most of us face.
0: We've been talking with Peter Irons, who is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at UC San Diego and the author of about 14 books and more publications online and videos about the United States Supreme Court, including one that we've been referring to a lot for our Landmark Cases series, A People's History of the Supreme Court. Thank you for being so generous with your time.
1: Uh, it was a pleasure.
0: Be sure to follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter, at C-SPAN Radio is our address, and you can find out more about future episodes. You can find all of C-SPAN's podcasts on our free C-SPAN Radio app. We're on Google Play Music, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn and Stitcher. And if you like our program, please rate us and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.